John chapter 18 will be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. You can find that on page 904 in the Pew Bible. John 18, page 904. We have been in the upper room with Christ and his disciples for almost the last year. It is time to move on, which is a difficult thing to do, for me at least. But as I was thinking about it this week, the feeling I've had of sadness and reluctance to move on does make a little bit of sense. We've been sort of frozen in time, resting and hiding away in the sweet refuge that is those precious few hours that Jesus spends with those he most loves. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. This has been a restful respite as he washes their feet, teaches them, encourages them, prays for them. But it could be easy to forget the storm that is raging all around them. When we last left the narrative, at the end of chapter 11, Jesus has worked his seventh climactic sign, revealing himself and his identity as the resurrection and the life with all power and authority, even over death itself, in the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And the result, the response, 1153, from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Chapter 12 is a sort of transition chapter, verse 36, as Jesus departs and hides himself and the unbelief of the people is highlighted. Now, 18.1, as Jesus goes out with his disciples, he goes right back in to all of that. All the unbelief, opposition, hatred, and death. So as we go out with him, we are leaving the eye of the storm, the, the calm, the peace, the refuge, the rest. We are crossing the eye wall right back in to the hurricane. We've been lingering, taking our time, enjoying the comforting and loving teaching and praying of our Savior. But now the pace picks up. Now the action accelerates. It's as if Christ is now making a beeline for the cross. Everything that happens in this chapter is to get us to the next chapter and the cross. We are approaching the end. And as we approach this end, we are approaching the, the central event in the whole of history. The, the central event of your life, whether you know it or not, as we approach the death of Christ. This really is the purpose of this passage. You should always be asking yourself as you're reading God's word, right, why is this here? Well, everything here is now all about Christ's work on the cross. But these first 11 verses of this last section of the book provide a uniquely important perspective to help us better appreciate that work. Listen, we need to be especially careful in the coming weeks. We need to be especially mindful. Be, be thinking and extra aware of Peter's sermon on the danger of dullness of hearing. Do not be dull of hearing when it comes to the cross. Do not allow yourself to be bored with the cross and assume that you know this and that you've got this. These verses can really help us as John here goes out of his way to uniquely emphasize the unique identity of the person who is about to do this work. As we build to the what, John highlights here first the who as well as the why. So our focus 
is on the person of Christ in Gethsemane on the way to the cross. And let's be clear about something up front. If you are a Christian, then you never have your own personal Gethsemane. Let's be careful about the language that we use. That's the whole point of this. Christ is doing what he does here as our substitute so that we never have to do this. We never have to pay what he is paying. But we do, of course, face all kinds of trials and troubles. We very much do deal with all sorts of storms and hurricanes in this hard and often painful life. We just read of David again facing evil, people rising against him, seeking his life. That's life. It's it's difficult, often confusing. We are often tempted toward despairing. So how? How can we possibly face and deal with all of these things? You have faced difficult things this week. How have you dealt with them? How have you reacted and responded to them? If it's anything like me, not always perfectly. So how can we possibly respond to all of these things and to God in glad obedience, rejoicing in the Lord always, when things so often seem so dark and he sometimes seems so distant? Well, the answer is here in John 18. In this most dark of times, when God seems most distant, the answer is in the three key truths that John is revealing to us about the identity, the the person of this Christ. And they will serve as our three points to help focus our time this morning. We're going to see first, and this is very, very important for you today, that Jesus knows all. And then second, we're going to focus on the fact that even in this story, Jesus shows all. And then third, we'll see and close with the fact that Jesus pays all. All three of those are true of John 18, and all three of those are true of right now. And those truths and the Christ of those truths is what I most want you to know today. That's our goal. The purpose of this passage is to reveal the identity and the glory of of this Jesus who knowingly gives himself into the hands of sinners and the wrath of God for us. And so the purpose of this sermon is to help you know and love and live your life in light of the identity and glory of this Christ. So first, let's read the text. Let me read for you God's word. This is the most important part. This is God's living and active word. Be following along, making sure my words are coming from this word. Our goal is to draw out the meaning that is here in this text and to see the Christ of this text. Let me read for you John 18, verses 1 through 11. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Judas said to them, I am, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back 
and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's stop there. Let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, please help us. Father, there are things right now that are troubling us. Father, there are things that we have to do this afternoon, things that are coming this week. There are conflicts, there are tensions. Father, there are all kinds of things that are clamoring for our attention and for our affection. Father, please help us to set those things aside for the next few minutes. Father, we are approaching here the most important hours in the history of this world and the most important hours of our lives, Lord. Father, may our attention be fixed upon the Christ who is at the very center of this most important thing that has ever happened. Father, may you do uh, the thing that I am utterly incapable of doing. Father, may your spirit work through your word to open our eyes to the significance and the importance of what is happening here. Father, nothing else that we're facing this week Nothing else that is on our hearts and minds is as important as this Christ and what he is doing here for us and for the salvation of sinners. Father, help us to increasingly uh, think um, and consider um, what you consider to be the most important. Father, put things into perspective. Father, do that by showing us the glory of this Jesus Christ and what he reveals to us about himself in this text. Father, I can't do that. Father, we can't even hear that and understand that apart from you. So we ask for your help, and we are utterly and entirely dependent upon you. Father, please now work through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, Jesus knows all. It's obviously coming from verse 4. Then Jesus knowing all. That's arguably the, the, key passage, the key idea of the passage. But then there's Jesus revealing himself three times as I am. And then there's verse 11 and the cup. It's just too hard to pick the most important. But there's our three-point outline. And if we can see what seems like a contrast to us, if we can see Jesus knowing all, Jesus showing himself as the great I am, and then this Jesus drinking the cup, our cup, that, that could be a game changer. It's the combination of I am and the cup that you most need to see today. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. So first the words, now the work. But what words? All the words of chapters 13 through 17. All the words we have been considering for this last year. 17.1 actually begins identically to 18.1 when Jesus had spoken these words. So there have been two parts to these words, teaching words and praying words. All words, 13.1 of love. All words, 14.1 of comfort. And it was a lot of words. I should go add it up. I composed hundreds of tens of thousands of words about those 
words. And I love that Jesus teaches his disciples in his final moments with them. I love that he gives them words. He loves and he comforts them with words. He truly is the word. We must relearn to appreciate the word through which he works. But now he has finished speaking all these words and, verse 1, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So it seems that everything in those chapters has taken place in the upper room, inside uh, the city limits of Jerusalem, and now they are going out. Uh, The brook Kidron runs north-south, like directly to the east of the city. I gotta be east over here for you. I gotta do the opposite, I guess. It's confusing. Um, So they would have been over here. There are temples on the eastern edge. They go out the gates, and then there's the Kidron down the valley. They would have walked over that, and then they would have started to walk back up about a mile, and then back to verse one, they go where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. We know from the synoptic gospels that this garden was called Gethsemane. Synoptic, Two Greek words, soon means with, and opsis means sight, from ops. Uh, eyes, Susan, is an optometrist, eyes. So the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are the three that can be seen or viewed together as they share so many similarities. John is different. As Calvin has put it, the other three Gospels more exhibit Christ's body. John exhibits Christ's soul. In other words, John is uniquely focused on revealing to us who this Christ really is. Of course, the others are revealing that too. But they focus more on the what, the action, what he does, where John kind of really zeroes in, gets under the surface, and focuses more on the who and the why. And so it seems that as we read this, that John assumes that his readers would have knowledge of all these other Gospels and some of the events of those Gospels, including Gethsemane. We know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as we've just seen in Sunday school, come to Sunday school, that the first thing Jesus does in this garden is pray. And he prays with great energy and with great agony, ultimately with great fidelity. We will come back to that prayer at the end. But John entirely leaves that out. And we know that John is an excellent writer. We have seen again and again that John is a very purposeful writer. So why does he leave it out? Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Note the new. We have new in verse 2 and knowing in verse 4. And we have Judas in the middle of it all. Peter taught on Judas this morning from Matthew 27. We have a double Judas day today. And we last left Judas back in chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In verse 21, Jesus is troubled in his spirit and he reveals, A one of you will betray me. Who? The one to whom he will give this morsel of bread, 1326. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it 
was night. That's just pregnant with meaning there. It was night. Not just physically night, but spiritually night. And now here is Judas again, the betrayer, that same night, just a few hours later, because he knew the place. Verse 4, Jesus knowing all. Jesus knew that Judas knew the place. Jesus knew, verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So you have Judas, band of soldiers, these officers, lanterns, torches, weapons. This is an army. Where you read band of soldiers, the Greek actually comes from Latin and the Latin word for a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion. A legion was generally 6,000 troops, so a cohort was generally 600 soldiers. It seems unlikely that all 600 went. We have no idea. But even if it was half, you're talking about hundreds of soldiers combined with a contingent of Jewish officers from the religious authorities. And it's an army. It's an armed army coming after one man. Verse 4, then Jesus knowing all that would happen. So Jesus knew that an army was coming for him because Jesus knows all things. And if we have been paying attention to John, this should not surprise us. John has been repeating this in part, I believe, for this very moment. A few examples. Jesus demonstrated his supernatural knowledge in the very first chapter of the book, in his knowing of Nathanael, a knowledge that leads Nathanael to cry out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Notice our title. We're coming to that. This, this is the King. Chapter 2, 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. 664, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 13.1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and so on. Jesus knows all always. And so, back to verse 4, knowing all that would happen, Jesus comes forward and says to them, whom do you seek? This is a striking scene. But this is why John intentionally leaves out the prayer of agony in the garden. It's on purpose. What John is doing here, he's constructing an account. He's building it to make it clear. that As you read this, there's just this evident sense of Christ's total control that pervades this, this whole account. John's goal is to place the emphasis and thus our attention squarely on Christ's absolute authority, power, and control. He goes to the place that he knows that Judas knows. He goes to the place that he knows is about to be invaded by an army. And he goes right up to that army, initiating the contact, clearly in command of this whole scene, confronting and questioning them, whom do you seek? This is Christ the King in absolute control of all that is occurring. This is no Christ the unwitting victim. This is no Christ the unfortunate patsy, pawn, or prey. This is the king come to work his will exactly where and when 
and how he wants. My former professor, Andreas Kostenberger, opens his commentary on this section of John, writing, the major theme of John's passion narrative is the otherworldly kingship of Jesus. I like that. This is the king. Come to work his will. The king is the sovereign. The king is the one with authority and power. And Jesus is making that very clear in this opening scene. And it starts with the emphasis that this Christ, who is the king, knows all that would happen to him. And so he orchestrates it, and he faces it, and he does it entirely in control and with great intention and purpose. And, and here's the point and encouragement for you. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, must necessarily also then know all that will happen to you. Nothing, none of your circumstances are outside of his knowledge and will. Nothing can happen to you outside of his knowledge and will. Nothing you think or feel or do is outside of this king's knowledge and will. Now, how is that an encouragement? Well, we'll see. But all we're trying to see right now is who this Christ really is and, and understand and appreciate his person and identity. And we start with the truth that Jesus knows all. This is the omniscient God. This is part of his uh, absolute sovereignty, authority, power, and control over this, the worst of circumstances. Always read your circumstances in light of this circumstance. And it only gets bigger and better. Point number two, Jesus shows all. Now, where's that coming from? Obviously playing with words here, and I'm obviously way too pleased with the simple rhyme of Jesus knows and Jesus shows, but I'm a child. so. But let me show you where I think this is legitimately coming from. Go back to our text. Jesus has confronted and questioned the invading army. Whom do you seek? Look at verse they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. There's significance to that standing. We're going to return to Judas in a moment. But didn't I skip a word? I did not. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. But didn't I skip a word again? I did not. And we know that I did not because of the response. They drew back and fell to the ground. Who drew back and fell to the ground? The army. Roman soldiers. The baddest dudes in the world at that time. Military men. Trained men. Armed men. Trained and armed for the purpose of standing strong in the most stressful and dangerous of situations. War. Battle, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Roman soldiers did not run from a fight. Roman soldiers were trained to stand, face the fight, and charge forward. But here, they draw back and they fall to the ground. Why? In response to Jesus, why? Well, some actually disagree with this and debate this, and I just don't get it. Did they really say, hey, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus, oh, yeah, that, that's me, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm here. And then, ah, panic and, and collapse, and then they all fall to the ground. No, it doesn't make any sense. Look at the text. 
You probably already noticed the footnote in verse 5. The he has been added. The Greek literally says, I am, period. And we've seen this again and again and again in John. Ego, I, me. And there's no way that this is not purposeful. John writes with great purpose, as he must do so here. Remember that John structures his book in two parts. We are in the second part, generally referred to as the book of glory. The first part, through chapter 12, is generally referred to as the book of signs. John never calls Jesus' works miracles. He's very purposeful in his only referring to them as signs. And he gives us seven of them. And the signs are not the point. They point to the point. They, they point to and confirm and draw attention to the doer of the signs. They serve to reveal him, his identity, to emphasize this who. And alongside those seven signs, John gives to us seven statements. Seven identity statements. Seven I am statements, all beginning with this same strange grammatical construction, ego, I, me. It's strange because it's redundant, ego, not E-G-G-O, as in Lego, my ego, the delicious frozen waffles that I grew up on. Not that, but ego, E-G-O, think of the ego, we use the word ego, the Greek word just means I. It's the first person pronoun. Look back at 1726. Jesus says there at the end of his prayer, and I in them. Kai ego in altoi. I in them. But our verse is ego, I me. And I me, E-I-M-I, is just the Greek verb for to be. So I me by itself literally means I am. So ego, I, me, is this kind of strange double construction of I, I am. It's a bit unique. It can be used occasionally to put extra emphasis on the identity of the subject, but John is doing something more, and we know that he's doing something more. How do we know that he's doing something more? It's because of Exodus chapter 3. Because of God's revelation of himself, his identity to Moses in the burning bush. And remember, that's the son. It's the one who's going to take on flesh and be Jesus. The one, when you're hearing God in the Old Testament, you're generally hearing the son. So here is the son revealing himself, speaking to Moses. And Moses says, when the people ask me, what is your name? What do I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say to this people, the Lord, remember Lord in all caps is Yahweh, another form of the verb to be. Say to them, Yahweh, I am, this is my name forever. So God's personal covenantal name, I am. He is the one who is. He is the self-existent, unchanging, immortal, invisible, unknowable God who is the creator and sustainer of all. And in the Septuagint, that's the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek 200 years before Jesus is born. And so when they translate Exodus 3, they choose to translate God's name, I am, with ego, I me. And so when Jesus says, ego, I, me, 
he is very intentionally claiming that name. He is saying, I am that. I am he. I am God himself. And anyone at that time familiar with their Old Testament and the Septuagint would have understood this and would have felt the weight of what Christ was claiming. He is, I am. And we know that the Jews understood this because we've seen a similar strong response to this claim back in 858. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because they know what he's claiming. They just don't believe him. And so there's no way that when John includes this claim three times in our text, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8, ego I me, ego I me, ego I me, three times, Jesus says in faith, I told you that I am, all three carry and convey the weight of this one who would dare claim such a thing for himself. All three claims show him, and in showing him, show all. Jesus is showing all, and in showing all, he is revealing his glory. This makes sense. This is the theme. This this is what the previous prayer in chapter 18 was all about. It was all about glory, the showing and manifesting and display of all that Christ is in his greatness and godness. 17.1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth. 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 10, I am glorified in them. 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's Christ's will for you. And the will of the good and perfect God is always good and perfect. And your good and your perfection will be found with Christ in some way beholding his glory. And so Christ concludes his prayer in 26. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. And here we see him doing just that. Yes, he will most make the glory and grace of God known on the cross hours after this. Yes, he will continue to make the glory and grace of God known through the ministry of the Spirit, through the living and active word that reveals and relates God to us, which you should be praying that he does right now through the preaching of that word. But he is very much also making God known here in our text in 18 verse This must be a revelation of his glory. I can think of no other explanation for the entire army's response of drawing back and falling to the ground. This has to be some sort of unveiling of Christ's glory. Maybe a second sort of mini transfiguration. Matthew 17, 2, and Christ was transfigured, changed before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Peter's so overcome that he stumbles around and says stupid things. Verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, 
they fell on their faces and were terrified. There's something like that going on here. We are finite, fallen creatures. No matter how big, no matter how strong, no matter how important we are in this world, we are nothing compared to the infinite, incomprehensible God. And so on those rare occasions when people get some sort of sight of God's true glory, the the response is always overwhelming, falling over fear, as we see here. When Jesus simply speaks, and in speaking shows, I am. And in showing himself, again, he is showing all. Remember that there are seven Of those identity statements throughout John, the number of completeness, uh, arguably, all showing us something about the identity of Christ. Jesus keeps saying this, 635, I am the bread of life, 812, I am the light of the world, 107, I am the door, 1011, I am the good shepherd, 1125, I am the resurrection and the life, 146, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 151, I am the vine. And I've made the case, and we've seen that all of those are about life. All of those are a claim to be life. Because Christ is life, and life is everything. Life is all. Everything is encompassed in life. Anything not encompassed under the umbrella of life is death. And Christ has been revealing himself again and again throughout this book. That's why this passage is here. That's why we've been taking years to get through this book. This is the the fullest and clearest revelation we have of the one, the who, the person of this incomparable Christ. Colossians 1.17, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. No wonder he can speak and an army is leveled. This is what Christ is claiming in claiming to be I am, in claiming to be God. He is claiming not only to be your creator and your redeemer, he is claiming to be your very moment by moment sustainer and upholder, your every breath, your every thought, your every minute owes its existence to him. The name I am is revealing his aseity, his independence. He depends on nothing, everything else. You entirely depend upon him. He is claiming I am everything. He is life. He is all. And in some way, he is giving a little glimpse of that and of his glory in this scene. He is demonstrating who is in control. He is demonstrating who has the power. He is demonstrating whose will is being worked out. He is demonstrating that he is the king, the arresting king who gives himself over to be the arrested king. And so it's here in this revelation of I am that Jesus shows all. And there there are a lot of ways that we could apply this. Consider at least in regards to the world and to sin and evil. In verse 5, we see Judas standing with them. Judas is the opposite of the blessed man in Psalm 1. He is walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Where and with whom do you walk and stand and sit? 
and consider the them that he stands with. Drawn back, falling down, some sort of sight and experience of the glory of Christ. It was an evidently weighty and significant and overwhelming thing. But think about it. What happens? How do they respond to this revelation, to this unveiling of the glory of the Christ? Peek ahead to verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They saw something. Remember, a sight of the glory of Christ. Remember our Owen. A sight of his glory is the universal remedy and cure, the only medicine for all that ails us. They saw something, some sight of who this Christ is, and then they get back up and they dust themselves off and they bind him and they hand him over to be murdered. You see here the utter blindness of the world in sin. See the foolish irrationality of sin. See the hopelessness and helplessness of sin. This is what sin is. And this is a perfect illustration. It trades everything for nothing. Every time you sin, you are trying to trade that which is of most importance. He who is of most importance for nothing. You are subconsciously saying, not you, no thank you, this. Again, whatever this thing is that you have determined is better than him. Give great attention to whatever sin you find yourself in right now, in light of Judas and in light of these men. Sin is stupid. Sin makes us stupid. Sin is self-destruction. Jesus shows all. Sin trades all for nothing. Jesus shows all. Sin rejects all. Romans 3.23, and all have sinned. What hope is there for any of us? Only point number three. Jesus pays all. Only in the very thing this king, knowing all, showing all, controlling all, has come to do. Look at the end of verse 8. First see the great care of the king for his people. He reveals himself for a second time and says, So if you seek me, let these men go. Of course, they're, coming. they're going to arrest all of them. They're going to arrest the ones that are with Jesus as well. So he's talking about the 11 here, the, the disciples. Verse 9, This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus has just prayed that in chapter 17, verse 12. But how is this protection of their physical life here a fulfillment of what is clearly a concern for their spiritual life there? That they may be kept from the evil world and the evil one. It's probably uh, in, in that Christ knows them in their great weakness, as Peter is about to demonstrate. He is protecting them from a situation that they simply were not ready for. He's protecting them physically, keeping them from being arrested along with them. And so doing, he's also protecting them spiritually by protecting them from having their faith put to the test when they are not ready. Whatever the specifics, it's clear again that Christ the King, facing the infinitely greatest trial and trouble ever, is still concerned for and caring for those who are his. If you are his 
then you have to fight to know and believe that he is concerned and caring for you no matter what it is that you are facing, no matter what it is that you are feeling. And that is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in what follows. Verse 10. We have little time for Peter. Go back to Peter's Sunday school about Peter on this from Matthew 26. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Stop. It's a foolish move on Peter's part. It's a deadly move on Peter's part. I doubt that Peter was like this master swordsman, able to skillfully and deftly lop off his ear. Ha ha, take that. I've got your ear. No. Likely, Malchus is wearing a helmet. It seems that Peter is seeking to strike a head blow, a a killing blow. Maybe it it glances off the helmet and and takes off the ear. I think Peter's trying to kill the guy. But it's, it's far more foolish and deadly because Jesus has again and again and again revealed to Peter exactly who he is and exactly what he has come to do. This is no different than the get behind me Satan moment where Peter says, no, 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 not not you, Lord. He's doing the same thing here. Jesus has told him, I've come to die. This is the means to that life-saving death. Peter is once again getting in the way of Christ's work and will, and he is doing it in the most reprehensible way. As Jesus tells him in Matthew, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. The otherworldly kingdom of this otherworldly king will not be advanced by worldly and violent means. And so Jesus stops Peter. He intervenes. Uh, Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. And then into verse 11, here it is. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And here's where it helps to remember that John assumes that we know the other Gospels. And assumes that we know that Jesus has just finished praying minutes ago. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Why was Christ in such agony in the garden? Why was his soul very sorrowful even unto death? Many, many people have faced death with more calm, uh, more collected than Christ does in Gethsemane. But that is only because no one, no one knowing all that would happen, has faced this cup. And you know what it is. It's all over the Old Testament. It is a metaphor filled with terrible meaning. Uh, Two of the, the clearest ones, the first is Psalm 75, verse 8. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord... There is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17 says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup, of staggering. See, the cup is the wrath of God, and it is staggering. That is why Christ staggers in the garden. 
All of us have sinned. We know that we are sinners. There's no denying it. We often don't know how terrible that sin is and what it deserves. We've seen the blindness of sin and the stupidity of sin. There are a few things more difficult. I'm sure I have not succeeded. But there are a few things more difficult than truly convincing someone of the true nature of sin and what it deserves and demands, which is only justice and judgment. And that's what the cup is. That's what the righteous God's wrath is about. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we, we considered it last week. We all know about God. We cannot not know about God. His existence and power and claim on us is clearly perceived in the things that have been made, in the creation that is, that is out there and the law that is in here. We know and we hate, we reject, we deny, and there is no greater injustice. There is no greater evil than to know and deny and hate the infinitely and eternally all-glorious, all-good, all-beautiful God who made us and gave us everything to know something about him and say, no, thank you. Wrongs must be made right. That's justice. And there is no greater wrong. There is in the Lord's hand a cup with foaming wine, and he will pour it out and all the wicked shall drain it down to the dregs. And Christ says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That's the gospel. That's why the gospel is eternally good news and is of first importance. The king, knowing all, showing all, demonstrating who he is so clearly is the very one who is also paying all. As the king knowingly and willingly gives himself into the hands of sinners. As the means to give himself into the hands of the Father, whose right and righteous wrath is going to be poured out, not on us, the wicked, but on Christ the King in our place. And I say this with no exaggeration. It is here that you find everything that you need. I mentioned in the email this week that I'm reading a book by Francis Grimke, a former slave, freed at the end of the Civil War, becomes a Presbyterian pastor in D.C. I've really liked the book so far, um, but I read this yesterday from Grimke. He says, the man who finds Jesus Christ, who finds him truly, has found the solution to all his problems. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That's everything. That's it. That's everything. That's the solution to all your problems, past, present, and future. So let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. All your problems. We don't believe that. We don't. Do you believe that? Yeah, say you gave me a card. It has a million dollars in it. Cash. Now, it's not possible. It's a big card. But say you gave me a million dollars in a card, and I, get, I open it, and I get a paper cut from the card. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? I'm going to pay zero attention to that mildly irritating 
paper cut. Perspective. I just got a million dollars. What if you did everything that you could have possibly done to choose and earn and deserve hell? I hate the news. I'm pretty good at ignoring the news. Don't waste your time with the news, especially as this election approaches. It's a waste of time. You accomplish nothing in obsessing over the news. Um, again, whatever. A side note. But I have always been fascinated by war. I read everything I can get my hands on about the American Revolution, Civil War, Civil War World War I and II. And so when there is war news, it does grab my attention. So I could not help yesterday as I was working on this to not be kind of going back and forth and keeping up with the news coming out of Israel as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared, we are at war. But one headline particularly caught my eye as it reported the words of one of Israel's top defense officials, Major General Ghassan Alian, who said, Hamas has opened the gates of hell. That is strong language. I have shared before how one of the things that God began to change in me when he saved me in my early 20s was my words, my, my use of unnecessary words that did not honor the Lord. And listen, one of those words was hell. Hell in our culture is like the minor four-letter words. Like, that one's fine. No big deal. Just don't say the bad ones. Um, my Tar Heels won yesterday, and I wrote that before they won, so confidence. And I love my Tar Heels, and Duke lost last week, and I do not like Duke. Uh, ask me to show you the Nora video. It's famous in our family. But listen, my school's fight song ends with the cry, go to hell Duke. And I happily sang that for many years until I couldn't anymore. It's just not something that we should, not something that we can take lightly. And like Gethsemane's, I would encourage you not to think in terms of hard things as your own personal hell. Again, that's the whole point of this whole thing. But if there's anything that comes close, war might be it. War is hell, is a line attributed to William Tecumseh Sherman, a Union general in the Civil Army who is infamous for just absolutely wrecking the South as he cuts this, this path of total destruction and decimation through, down through Georgia, then back up through South Carolina, and then uh, up to North Carolina on his march to the sea. Many have argued that it was Sherman's successes that single-handedly won Lincoln's re-election. He's the man who says war is hell. So yeah, so yeah go, go read about war. It's the closest that it gets. Read about Sherman. Read about the trench warfare of World War I. Read about the concentration camps of World War II. Read some Ukraine-Russian news, some Israel-Hamas news from yesterday. War is hell, except that it's not. Except that it doesn't even come close to what hell actually is, unending judgment and wrath from the perfectly holy God, the total absence of all that is good, the, the total absence of the presence of God that is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, but the total presence of God that is the fullness of anger and wrath forevermore. We have lost any sense of the horror of hell. If you do not know the Lord this morning, that is what you face. Children, I grew up in a church 
being a pastor's kid and going to church thinking I was a Christian because of all those things. I did not know the Lord. And sin deserves hell. Have we reconciled ourselves with that fact? Do we actually believe that there is a holy God who will rightly judge our sin? And that sin against an eternally glorious God deserves an eternally long and unbearable punishment. That's hell. That's what we say that we believe. We need to work on actually deciding if we believe that. But what if you chose that and you worked toward that and you deserve that? Everything you did and put forward toward anything was moving in that direction and moving you in that direction. But instead, you got life abundantly and eternally, complete forgiveness of all those sins that deserved an eternity of unimaginable suffering, all of it gone and wiped out in a moment. Gladness and joy, this God who was against you, now with you and for you forever. Wouldn't that put everything else in perspective? Jesus pays all. Jesus paid it all. Past, present, future sins for all of those who repent and believe and turn to Christ. Paid in full. It is finished. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to face all of those troubles and trials of life. Listen, many of them are great and they are weighty and they are confusing and they are difficult, but you either face them without this or you face them with this. You either face them forgetting this or you face them remembering this. We face the difficulties of this life by remembering and thinking always on the truth that Jesus has paid it all and that your everything, your eternity is perfectly secured in him because of what he did 2,000 years ago, hours after the text that we're in right now. You face those things by remembering and thinking always on the truth that Jesus has shown all in revealing himself to you clearly through his living and active word as the very son of God who takes on flesh to take your place, your penalty, your punishment, your death, your hell to give you his life. You do it by remembering and thinking always on the truth that Jesus has known all that would happen to him And thus he knows all that will happen to you. And as he has shown himself here to be the king who is in total control of all circumstances, so he is the kind and compassionate king who is in total control of all of your circumstances. And he is in control of those circumstances for your good. No matter how bad or hard they seem, see him in control of the worst of circumstances in John 18 and trust and believe that he is in control of your circumstances. See him work those work of cir- worst of circumstances out for your eternal good and trust that he can work whatever the circumstances are right now for your eternal good. Will you trust him? If he knows all and controls all and shows all and pays all for you, then this king is very much worth your trust. 
This king who is here arrested for us is the most arresting person who has ever lived. You find him and you truly do find everything. You find him and you truly do find the solution to all of your problems. Let's pray and let's ask that God would give us eyes to see this Christ for who he truly is. Bow with me. Father, please help us. Father, please show us Christ. Father, help us to increasingly live for that which is of most importance. Father, help us to increasingly understand what it is that we were destined for and what it is we chose and what it is we did and deserved um, in our sin. Father, give us, give us a sense of what that sin is. Give us a sense of, of what hell is and what our uh, sin deserves. Father, so that, first of all, we can hate that sin and repent and turn away from that sin. Father, there is someone in here, there are many people in here who do not know you, Father, and this is their future apart from your grace. Father, open their eyes to their sin and grant them repentance. May they see their sin for what it is as an offense and an affront for you. And may they, by your grace, turn from it and flee that sin and flee the wrath to come and run to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. Father, please work through your word. And for Father, for those of us who in here are already yours entirely by your grace and yet who are still so prone to focus so much on ourselves and on our circumstances, who are still so prone to wander, still so prone uh, to sin. Father, help us to hate it. Help us to, to know it and see it for what it is. Father, help us to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness and love of Jesus Christ uh, and arrest us with him. Father, fill our hearts with great affection for your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that affection would increasingly put everything else in perspective. Pray that we would go into this week facing every single trouble and trial and difficulty and disappointment in light of Jesus Christ and who we are in him and what we have in him. Father, fix our eyes on the things that are above. Make us more heavenly minded. Help us to live our now in light of the then, the future, the eternity that you have guaranteed for us in Christ. Father, please help us now in Jesus' name. Amen.